0: Well, if you are on ye old social media, and you are my friend on Facebook or Instagram, you may have seen a post from me last night. Uh, I, w- I was all week, at the first three days of the week, I was praying, right, I, which as I often want to do, and begging God, God, please give me a message for this Sunday. And so God, in his grace, provided me with the truth from his word that we were to present this morning and I was like thank you God and then I woke up on Thursday and was like oh my goodness we have a child dedication and Mother's Day on Sunday. How are we going to fit the message in with all of these honorings that we're going to do? And so I started praying dear God please take some of your message back. (laughs) Yesterday after I finished running I was standing in The shower at my house, and I'm still praying and stressing and asking God, please, if you could truncate the message just a little bit for me, it would be helpful. And I, it was as if I felt God speaking to me on my spirit, and God said to me, "So let me get this straight. You spent three days begging me to give you a message, and now three days begging me to take part of it back. Pick a lane, my guy. Pick a lane." And I kept thinking about that. I kept praying and thinking about that. And and something struck me. What we say we want for our children will be reflected in how we help them approach what they truly need. What we say we want for our children will be reflected in how we help them to approach what they truly need. We just spent 15 or so minutes of our service declaring to the Lord that we want to raise our children to know Jesus to know his word, and to pursue him with their lives. That is what we declared, yes? We're going to spend 10 or 15 minutes at the end of the service honoring godly influences, godly mothers that have raised us and pointed us towards Jesus. That is what's going to happen, yes? It only makes sense then that if that's truly our desire, that we be like the mothers that we're going to honor at the end and that we be the parents and the church family that we committed ourselves to being at the beginning, that we will dedicate ourselves to the truth of God's word in the middle. So I'm going to preach what God has laid on my heart. And I'm going to try to get you to the restaurants on time. But I do want you to know that if you made a reservation for early this afternoon, you did not consider who your pastor was. And I offer no apologies. Because I, I think the message, God and his timing, we planned this, this Servant University series months before we got here. We didn't know that this passage, we, I wish I could say that we would start thinking about that and that we'd line them up, but we didn't. And I find it interesting that as we consider Peter this morning, if we're not careful, we fall into the same trap as Peter. The confidence that comes along by our correct confession of faith can at times cause us to confuse our proper place in the kingdom of God. We forget that if he is Christ and he is king, that we are then in fact not, and that we need to submit ourselves to his rule and reign and his guidance and direction in our lives. That we still need to seek him, and as we seek him, we need to submit to him and follow him. Is he truly the Lord of our lives? And we're going to consider that this morning. What is our role in the kingdom of God? If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I just, isn't that not the best sound in a church service? I, I, know, I know there was some stress up here, uh, with, with the, but that is the best thing for me i got to be honest with you. It does not bother me at all when you have children sitting with you and I hear them making noise. I think that is, is that not the greatest blessing from God? Okay, maybe it's not for you, but it is for me. That is the future of the church. (laughs) Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, says this. And Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to preach to them that, and, and teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. May God bless the reading of his word as we receive it today. There's a whole lot of truth in it. There's this sandwiched Of confession and revelation that happens where where at the beginning we have the confession of Peter and the disciples of who Jesus is and at the end we see a revelation of the truth of that confession through the transfiguration and in the middle we see this difficult revelation about what is really going to happen and the truth of what the Messiah will go through. There are several things that we have to consider that are important for us as we seek to follow Christ in our own lives, as we seek to submit ourselves in his service. First, faith requires you to declare what you believe about Jesus. Faith requires you to declare what you believe about Jesus. You know, the world has has never lacked for opinions about who Jesus was, whether that be now or when Jesus first came onto the scene. And Jesus asks the disciples, what, is, what are the, the predominant theories? What are the things that people are saying? What is it that what people believe? Remember, big, huge crowds were coming to approach and see Jesus everywhere they went. They, they'd seen the miracles. They'd experienced the, the greatness and the grandeur of his, his supernatural power. And so people are trying to parse out in their mind who exactly, based on the truth of Scripture, is this guy? Who is it that we're dealing with? And why does it matter? And there were three predominant theories of the day. First, they believed that it was John the Baptist. That it was literally John the Baptist reincarnated and come back to life, at least in spirit. Now, why would they believe this? Well, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the arrest and execution of John the Baptist occurred pretty close in sequence, historically. Historically. And it was believed that by many that John's spirit passed to Jesus and doubled. that's That's why John the Baptist spoke so boldly and so many people came to him and received the message of repentance and were baptized because he had this incredible spirit of a prophet. But then Jesus went beyond John the Baptist because he wasn't just speaking, but he was doing miracles, right? Now, what they they believed is it was the exact same thing that had happened with Elijah and Elisha, that Elijah and Elisha set a precedence. And and what had happened is that, that once John the Baptist was taken to heaven via his execution and Jesus began his public ministry, that now that spirit of John the Baptist passed to Jesus and doubled in the same way that it happened with Elijah and Elisha. It makes sense how they would get to that conclusion if you if you believed in the Old Testament that was the truth of God's word you believed that both of these were prophets it would make sense how that transition could could be assumed the second was that this was Elijah based on Old Testament prophecies it was believed that Elijah literally actual bodily Elijah would one day return to announce the kingdom of God at the Messiah's arrival now remember there's there's precedent and reason for us to believe that too because elijah never died elijah never died and rather than dying god took him up to heaven and it was believed that he would then return and so it was believed with jesus doing all of these miracles and these mighty things that who could this be but the return of the mightiest prophet in the pantheon of prophets from the old testament this is elijah himself Further, there were others that were just uncertain, and so they said, well, this is just one of the prophets. This is, the belief, then, is that, that Jesus is simply another in a long list, a long line of miracle-working men of God, bringing the message of God to the people of God. The next iteration of whatever the prophets were going to be, the continuance of God's line of people coming to declare, thus says the Lord. Now, all of these views demonstrate an extremely high view of Jesus, don't they? All of them have precedence in the Bible. They all have precedence in Old Testament Scripture. So people are trying to parse that out and put it together. They are all good theories. The problem is that all of them are incomplete and inaccurate. Have a bunch of different views of Jesus, but none of them really get the full picture. So which Jesus is it? You know, I watched a, a TV show a while back. I got really into it for a while, and and there was as the episodes continued, one came up that really bothered me. And, and in this particular episode, the, the show is talking about different deities that that Americans um, in general worship, and and, and, it, and the whole show surrounds uh, the, the media being the god that dominates the culture of the day, and, and how people are are submitting themselves to the media, and to materialism, and so I was really into the show, and and there came one episode, though, where the the people made their way to this celebration on Easter, and as they made their way to this celebration, they, they passed Jesus, and then another Jesus, and then another Jesus, and then another Jesus, and before you know it, you looked around, and there were dozens, if not Hundreds of different Jesuses walking around this celebration. And someone made the comment, well, there are many, as many Jesuses in the world today as there are people. Everybody has a different opinion, so we need a different Jesus for everybody. Now we hear that, and, and we, we, we rightly, I was offended at that as I saw it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there's probably some truth to that perspective. I've actually heard people say, and it drives me nuts when people say it, well, my Jesus, he does this. And my word of God says this. As if somehow your Bible and my Bible don't say the same thing. As if your Jesus and my Jesus are not the same Jesus. Listen, folks, there is no plurality of Jesus's. We don't get to pick and choose the pieces of Jesus that we like and leave those that we don't like we're putting together some divine build-a-bear. And it's our duty as disciples of Jesus Christ to seek and to share him as accurately as possible. Who do people say that i am well people are going to always be talking but we constantly need to be seeking to see jesus all the more clearly and to reveal him to others as clearly as possible the truth is that faith is meant to be lived and learned in community as we just communicated this morning but it must also be owned by each and every individual which is where jesus takes the question next Who do people say that I am? And then Jesus turns to the next question, which is the question for each of us, the question for the ages that each of us must consider. Jesus says to the disciples, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Rather unsurprisingly, Peter pipes up and says what they're all thinking. Well, Jesus you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. Peter's declaration demonstrates that he has both heard and accepted the truth that Jesus has been teaching. Now let's be clear that what Jesus is claiming is, what Peter is claiming is a little bit different than what you and I think of. We think back and we look and we think of Jesus as the promised one and we primarily think of Jesus as a savior. We think of Jesus as a Savior, and for us, because we are 2,000 years removed from Jesus' physical living on earth, we see Jesus as the one that is saving us from the reality of sin and the truth of evil in the world that we might one day make our way to heaven. And there is some truth to that, but that is incomplete because Christ is supposed to also be the Lord of our lives, meaning that it should impact who we are now. For Peter and the disciples and the people of the first century, when they declared that Jesus was the Messiah, they were saying more than he was just a spiritual savior. They were saying that he was actually the promised and coming king, that he was going to have a literal and physical reign on this earth. When Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, he is correct. The problem, though, is that even Peter's confession is inaccurate. Have you ever noticed in this text that Peter makes the confession and Jesus immediately says, Hey, keep this to yourselves for a minute. Does that not strike anyone else as strange? And we spend, I spend weeks upon weeks talking to you on Sunday mornings here at First Baptist Church saying, You need to share the truth of the Messiah. You need to share the truth of who Jesus is, right? We're, we're diligent about that. But Jesus says, Hey, Peter, so hold that thought. For just a second, and I think we see why Jesus is having them hold tight. Immediately following this, I think that we have to understand, though, as we move before we move past this point, as we talk in, about the consideration of who do you say that I am? Romans ten nine through ten tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God ha- that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we'll be saved. Confession is part of the deal. That a public declaration of what we believe to be about, true about Jesus is part of the process, the salvific process. Now I want to be careful because we, we've taught people for generations that if they come to the front to the altar and they pray a simple prayer that they are saved. Or that if they jump in some water and we dunk them and throw some water on them that they're saved. Now, th- those are important things, and I don't mean to trivialize them. The problem is, I think by our lives, we trivialize those things. Those are incredibly powerful moments. The, the prayer of confession and, and the-, the public profession are-, are incredibly important, and I, I don't at all want to-, to minimize those, but we need to see them as they, are- as they truly are, that they are communicating a truth to the world, and they are helping us to walk through the steps of knowing who Jesus is Understanding that in our and claiming that in our own lives and then declaring that to the world around us. But we must make the profession ourselves. No one else can confess Christ for you. And we can't confess Christ for anyone else. We 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 said this morning that we're gonna do the best that we can to raise these children to know Jesus. And it is our job to do so, to point, if you listen to what we said, everything that we said was about pointing the kids to Jesus, trying to walk with them on the journey so that they themselves would see and know Jesus. That is the goal, that each of us would come to a point of decision that we can know who Christ is and make that profession and confession for ourselves, that you are the Messiah. But if he is the Messiah, if he is truly the King and Lord of our lives, then that means something very important for us, that we are not. That he's in charge, and we will submit ourselves to his leadership. And we have to understand that as we come to the truth of his word. We don't get to, just like we don't get to put Jesus together on our own, we don't get to pick and choose the Bible like a buffet. We, we follow the commandments and what Christ says as, as it is. Now, I get that there's some interpretation to that, But just because we don't like a truth doesn't mean that we get to ignore it. The master's plans are not subject to the student's expectations. The master's plans are not subject to the student's expectations. And Jesus Jesus taught some difficult and very hard truths as we look throughout the gospel. But none were more difficult than the one he taught on this occasion. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this to them. This is brand new information for the disciples. And it would have been, at that time, incredibly offensive and off-putting information to the disciples. See, we go back to the term Messiah. To, to them, the Messiah was a symbol of strength to them messiah was a symbol of of supremacy and a return of israel to their greatness and overthrowing of the oppressors it, it was it was a sign of the coming of god instituting his kingdom physically by force on the world it's it's funny to me that, that the the first century people constantly look at that and they point to jesus as this as this military monster coming to destroy the world and Jesus is like hold on a second it's a little different than you think you know what's ironic to me about that though is that we look at the bible and we say the same thing oh jesus is coming with a sword and he's going to lay down the hammer on people is he really though what if what if we're mistaken Because it seems to me that everything they knew about Jesus, they understood the truth, but their application was totally incorrect. If you look throughout the book of Mark, you'll notice specifically that Jesus himself doesn't use the term Messiah. He prefers Son of Man. Says Peter calls him the Messiah, and Jesus then immediately tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, Son of Man was a, a term that was constantly used of the Old Testament prophets. You know what happened to all of the Old Testament prophets? They were killed. They suffered horrible indignities and violences at the hands of the leaders of their community and their world in order to stand for the truth of God's coming reign and kingdom. Why would they expect anything different? For Jesus Jesus came to save right John 3 16 and 17 tells us that that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life we just say saying that truth a moment ago didn't we the very next verse says that for the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him There is always, this has always been the truth, that without the shedding of blood, there is no salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no salvation. Salvation has always required sacrifice. Jesus' statements, just as you listened to some of mine this morning, would have bordered on the blasphemous to a first century crowd. The Messiah, suffering, suffering. Now, never, never mind that Isaiah specifically mentions the fact that, that the, so, the servant, the Son of God, would suffer, that the Savior would suffer, that the Messiah would suffer and take upon himself the penalty of our sins. For them, though, this would have been a heinous violation of the truth of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And Peter, feeling himself from the affirmation of his earlier confession says, Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute? Notice that it says that Peter pulled him aside, and Jesus, Peter's like, Jesus, come, come here for a second. Um, you can't say that. Like, I, I, know, I, know that, I know that you're the Messiah, you're the king, and you're the teacher, you're the rabbi, but let me help you for a second, because I'm on a roll today, and Jesus, you're just a little bit off base, you might want to soften this a little bit. You might, this is what the Messiah is really supposed to do, so you might want to go back and, and correct your error. Like, as, as, it, as if he's just correcting some grammar. Notice what Jesus does. And, and this, I think this is important, because Peter pulls Jesus to the side, and Jesus doesn't just say to Peter, hey Peter, shout your dumb face. He's standing there to the side with Peter, and the scripture tells us that he looked back at his disciples. And and looking at his disciples, publicly he says, he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Notice that the mouth that confessed Christ as king attempts to correct his misguided notions. How quickly we forget ourselves ourselves we get so confident in our own understanding and expectations that we fail room for adaptation when Christ reveals further truth to us. Who doesn't struggle with the uncomfortable and inconvenient nature of truth at times? But it's not for us to decide. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but rather in all our ways to acknowledge Him and allow Him direct or make our paths straight. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord isn't meeting your expectations in your lives, if he isn't living up to your understanding, it is not the Lord Jesus that needs to change. If the Lord isn't meeting your expectations and understanding, it isn't the Lord who needs to change. And perhaps we need to evaluate what's going on in our lives and who we're looking at and make sure that we're following the right Messiah. Notice that Peter publicly again, privately confronts Jesus and Jesus deals with Peter publicly because Peter's, Peter's statement communicated the opinion of the group. This was a lesson that all of the disciples needed to learn. I think that's why Jesus said, hey, hold this truth to yourself for a minute here. They needed further education. And note that Jesus calls Peter Satan. It's it's interesting if you consider where, where Christ has before been confessed by demons, right? The demons say, hey, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One of God. And Jesus says, hey, keep it quiet. Jesus uses the same words to Peter and his disciples. Hey, keep this quiet. And then he calls Peter Satan, the adversary. Why does he do that? Because in that moment... Peter is taking up the mantle of the adversary and doing exactly what the devil did to Jesus in the wilderness. He is tempting him with the same temptation. Hey, Jesus, there has got to be an easier way. There's got to be a more socially acceptable way. There's got to be a a quicker way. There's got to be a more comfortable way. For you and I, as we follow Christ, we aren't called to look for the easy way. We're called to look for the right way. We aren't called to look for the most convenient and comfortable way. We are supposed to follow the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross. Decidedly uncomfortable. Two thoughts that jump into my mind with this. First, we must maintain humble and teachable spirits as we seek Jesus. We can't be afraid of correction and accountability in our lives as we pursue Christ. We need to own our area, the areas in our lives where we fail to repre- Jesus, represent Jesus properly and seek to adapt our understanding and our outworking so that we can follow and represent him better. And we need to let Jesus be Lord. It's his kingdom. We just get to live in it and that by his grace. Jesus communicates that. He goes from talking about his own passion and crucifixion to then turning to his disciples and opening the call to all disciples and saying that, that if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourselves and take up your cross and following, follow me. Following Christ must result in submission to his will. Following Christ must result in submission to his will. Self-denial and sacrifice are hallmarks of discipleship. This is what one of the most, we we love this passage in modern Christianity. If anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross. We've got to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you understand that this is not about some ornamental cross that we wear to identify ourselves as being Team Jesus. This isn't about us listening to, to good Christian music when we're driving around in the car. I love Christian music. I like to write it. This isn't about us wearing Christian clothing or supporting Christian businesses. This is about the the, the sacrifice of our lives to Christ, whatever that may mean. It's common for us, but it would have been horribly shocking and offensive, even crass to the original audience. Listen, I thought about this statement and what Jesus is saying in cultural ways that I could phrase it in the same way here today that you would understand how offensive what Jesus says really is but it is so offensive that I'm not going to say it because I don't know that my pastor it could survive it it is truly that offensive that remember the cross was was a, a symbol of shame a symbol of suffering to say to someone you need to take up your cross and follow me would be a horrible marketing technique But Jesus, through his own life, would demonstrate that this was not necessarily figurative. What is it that you're not willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? What is it that you place above, that you value more than than, than following Jesus? Because there should be nothing that we aren't willing to sacrifice for Christ. All disciples must be willing to sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. Jesus goes on to tell us that life will be lost and saved. We choose when. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the sake of the gospel will save it. Jesus is playing word games because the, the word for life and the word for soul are technically the same word. Jesus is saying, where do you want, where do you want to live your life truly? Which life are you going to value most? The one that's lived in and through me or the one that you can make on your own power? The Bible teaches us that we will, in fact, acknowledge Christ now or later. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will we do it of our own accord or will we do it when we have no choice? We are to confess Christ as Lord, to turn our lives over to him, understanding that he will make more from us than we could make of ourselves. Our lives will be transformed to match his through his power and presence. That is the importance, and that's why this ends with the transfiguration, because following Christ will result in transformation both now and later of the follower of Christ. The transfiguration does two things. First, it confirms Peter's confession. Now, the account of the transfiguration is mirrors Sinai in the coming of the first co- covenant. It also mirrors the, the presence of, of Elijah when he went up on the mountain and was confronted by the Spirit of God and the storm and the wind and the cloud of God's glory came to him. But it communicates more than just the power and presence of God because Moses was known as the arbiter of the law. He was the one that gave them the Old Testament. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets, the most powerful of those declaring and preaching the truth of God's word. By Jesus appearing with both of them simultaneously at the time and all three being transfigured, God is communicating that this covenant is going to be better than the last, that this prophet is more powerful than the last, that there is something special, there is something other about Jesus, that he is in fact, as God himself confesses here, he is my son whom you are to listen to. The voice of the Father affirms Jesus' identity as God's son but also the validity of his words. Now, what were his words? That the Son of Man will suffer many things. And that if you are going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and deny yourself. Those are the words that have just been spoken. Those are the words that that the Father is saying, listen to his truth. His truth may not fit within your box. It may not fit within your expectation or understanding, but it is the truth. But the transfiguration points beyond an affirmation of Peter's confession and it points to our own transformation. The word Paul uses in Romans 12, 1 through 2 is the same word that is used here for the transfiguration when Paul says that we need to not be conformed to the pattern of this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Following Christ, confessing Christ should should mean a change. It should mean a continuous development as we move into the future following Christ. We shouldn't be content to simply believe in the true nature of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are called to participate in it. Yes, following Christ and submitting to his rule as our Savior and King may well require sacrifice on our part. As a matter of fact, it will to some degree require sacrifice on our part. It will require us to serve him with our lives and also to serve those he came to save. In fact, it may cost us our very lives, as it did for almost all of his first disciples. But it will also result in our ultimate glorification as we become as he is and see him in all of his glory so the question we have to a- answer for ourselves today particularly on this day as we talk about pointing young children towards jesus and being grateful for mothers and ladies who have invested in our lives and and played a motherly role in our lives that they've pointed us to jesus is who do you say that jesus is is he just another jesus A cultural convenience that we follow around, that we identify ourselves because that's part of our clique? Or is he, in fact, Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Lord of our lives, and the Savior of this world? The way that we answer will vastly change the way that we live our lives and we pursue him. The attention that we pay to his word and the way that we function in relationship to him and to others around us. May God reveal to us today and every day the truth of who he is and may he draw us close to himself as we seek his will and seek to follow his path in this life. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us daily and that we would daily in turn take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. God, teach us what it means to be willing to sacrifice all to Jesus, to surrender all to Jesus that we are. May you work in and through us to make a difference. May our confession be more than a momentary convenience, but the truth that drives our lives. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.